South London Hardcore is now part of the Holdfast Network. Visit holdfastnetwork.com for other podcasts you may enjoy. to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. Our guest this week is John Grindrod, author of Concretopia, a journey around the rebuilding of post-war Britain. Watcha. Yeah, <laughs> that's the idea. Before we get started, before we get started, uh, another reminder that on the 4th of October we'll be live at Elephest, up the elephant, round the castle, taking you on a tour around the Elephant and Castle, not literally, we'll, we'll all be in Long Wave Bar, <laughs> in, the, uh, in the artworks on Elephant Road. 7 o'clock, free entry, see you there. Go to southlandhardcore.com or facebook.com slash southlandhardcore for more details. So your book is n- new in paperback, or fairly new in paperback, John. Yeah, yeah. And do you want to give us an idea of what it's about? You'll do it more justice than I <laughs> So, um, So the book is, I sort of travelled around Britain, sort of trying to get the story and sort of an idea of what it was like uh, in that sort of post-war period where a lot of Britain was rebuilt. So um, I'm from Croydon, uh, from a housing estate outside Croydon, New Addington. And I wanted to kind of try and tell the story of places like that that I just felt were really underrepresented and sort of ignored um, generally in books and, you know, sort of culture. I felt like they were... In, and if they were represented, it was always in a really negative way. So I thought, you know, it'd be nice to kind of tell something slightly more optimistic, or at least with a more optimistic slant. Some of it you can't be that optimistic about. But. Yeah, you don't shy away from corruption and, um, you know, criticism of buildings. And but also the, the, the literal physical failings as well, like the collapses and fires yeah. and whatnot, which, you know, was really refreshing because it is, it's very much a celebration of a particular kind of building and particular materials and techniques. Mm. But it's not a case of you sort of going, and this is why it's fantastic and there's nothing negative to say about it. It's a yeah. balanced thing, which makes you appreciate it even more, I think. Yeah, well, I think one of the things I realised when I sort of had the idea was there were... You know, there seem to be three sorts of books about this subject. One which you'd get your kind of illustrated, lovely, glossy book. And then you would get your your sort of really polemical book. So, you know, you would get, you know, somebody massively slagging it or somebody going, it's amazing. And then sort of not a lot in between. Or um, you'd, uh, and another sort of book, which I've completely forgotten, um, a very academic. I mean, you get a lot of really academic books about the subject, which, you know, for a, a general reader like me, you know, I mean, I don't have an ba- architectural background or anything like that at all. So I had to, you know, I sort of completely taught myself when I was going along writing it because I didn't have, a, you know, I didn't know. So before this, you had no background in Oh, no, absolutely That's not. That's remarkable, no. I so, think, yeah. from reading the book because I just assumed. The, the, thing, the, only, <laughs> the only thing I would add to that is that, do you know a podcast called 99% Invisible? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, it's about architecture and design yeah. and it's incredible. Yeah. And the guy, we saw the guy recently doing a live show and he revealed that he had no architectural background. Yeah. So now I'm just explaining no one's got an architectural background. <laughs> no, no, that's right, yeah. Why are all these buildings falling down? <laughs> no, one, no one knows what they're doing. <laughs> just put another roof on it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing, like reading it, um, you do have... Um, an enthusiasm for the subject, clearly, but you would never think to call it an amateurish enthusiasm. It's not something where, but do you know what I mean? It's not a case of you going around and going, and I like this because I think it looks great. You've, you've, you've got very reasoned, you know, there is, a, for me, uh, it felt like a strong sort of academic spine to the whole thing, but, you know. Well, I tried to, you know, I, 
I sort of, I, I did read a lot of academic books and I read a lot of sort of quite general stuff. I read a lot of newspaper articles from the time and obviously spoke to a lot of people and interviewed a lot of, you know, actual humans. And I sort of wanted to do something that was, that was accessible and sort of, you know, anybody could read it, but that it wasn't kind of just fobbing people off with a kind of half-baked kind of thing. I think when I initially wrote the proposal for it, I, it was a lot, there were a lot more jokes in it. <laughs> some of the jokes <laughs> along the way um but you know I sort of imagined it was going to be very light when I started doing it and then the more I read and researched the more I just thought actually you just can't I can't I can't do that to the subject it would be terrible to kind of be that flippant all the way through you were going it, to be know. Tony Hawks I was awful yeah it was going to be yeah around Tony Hawks more. around <laughs> South London with uh yeah concrete bridge yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah luckily not South London features heavily in the book, mm. uh, which I, I picked up because it looked interesting. It picked up in the ICA bookshop, and uh, you know, I'm kind of a bit of a sucker for kind of popular. I say popular academic. What's the right phrase for it, Steve? That kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, I would say so. Um, the stuff that kind of makes it occasionally onto the free for two table, but <laughs> it's definitely kind of going near academic books on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I was quite thrilled to open it up, and your whole your prologue is about Croydon. Um, it recently on the show, we, we uh, talked every week about South London, if yeah, anyone's yeah. listening for the first time. Um, and we set a rule at the start that it, it, South London is everything south of the river that has an SE or an SW postcode. Right. And in the last few weeks, there's been a, we've kind of ventured into Croydon. <laughs> so like, Bit part, of CRO. Going yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, what, 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 where do you stand? What, should we be doing that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think... Croydon has got this very weird thing in that it thinks it's a city. You know, it thinks it's its own thing. You know, it think, and it is like the you know ninth biggest sort of urban area in Britain. I mean, it is massive. I mean, it's bigger than you know almost all the other actual cities in Britain. Um, so it's not surprising, but at the same time, it it doesn't get treated as part of London, be, sort of because it's because it's so big and sort of inward looking. It's not really outward looking like a lot of London is. You know. You know, you get a feeling with a lot of London that, you know, people are very kind of plugged into the centre of London or they're, you know, or whatever. I think in Croydon, it sort of feels like everybody's sort of staring at the centre of Croydon and not out into London. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, bumping into friends from school years later, you know, and them asking me where I went. And I said, oh, I went sort of near Covent Garden. And they were like, oh, I went there once. You know, know, so I think a lot of people don't really make it out of New Addington. You know, a lot of people, you know, it's one of those kind of places where people kind of hang around. You know, they don't, you know, there's a lot of kind of family, you know, families sort of stick around quite a lot, which I think, you know, given that a lot of London is quite transient, you know, it doesn't have that feeling about it so much. Um, uh, but yeah, I think Croydon sort of gets ignored by the rest of London just because it is quite inward looking. It would be really nice if it was included a bit more. It's a bit, you know, it's the kind of, you know, slightly awkward neighbour, perhaps, to yeah. the rest of the other places that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, Steve's keen. Steve's my my keen take on it is if. Um, if there was a Surrey if, hardcore, if they there's... wouldn't mention Croydon at all. <laughs> <laughs> but also, no, exactly. it, if, if Croydon gets mentioned on the news and it's usually negative, it's usually riots or abductions, yeah. it's Croydon, South London. So they're quite happy mm. to sort of, and if, uh, I feel yeah, nobody almost like a protective sorry. attitude where if, if they're going to get lumped in with us for the negative stuff like we are, mm. then we should sort of like put a, put a little arm around them and go, Croydon, come over here. You're mm. all right. You're not on your own. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just you versus the BBC. It's us versus the BBC. And then we jump from the prologue, obviously, to uh, 
to uh, chapter one and you're like I live in Forest Hill and now I'm off to Catford so I was like great right this is going swimming <laughs> but as you say as well it's the, 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 the whole journey of the book really starts and ends in New Addington doesn't it where mm. it's the sort of base of your curiosity about this this huge uh, program well programs this huge mm. sort of swathe of, of building because obviously New Addington was the one you lived in, so you saw it firsthand, and it is a sort of curiosity that leads you to look at other examples. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Well, the thing is, is that you know, I I went off to university, and I was sort of whenever I tried to describe where I came from, I found that I just couldn't describe New Addington convincingly to anyone. It didn't sound like anywhere that anyone understood, <laughs> and I couldn't really articulate what it was about New Addington that was seemed a bit weird and different from a lot of other places, um, and. And I guess when I sort of started thinking about this book, I thought, God, this is really is my chance to try and understand and articulate what New Addington is actually like to people that would never, you know, never going to go there. I mean, a lot, I suppose most of the people that read it are never going to go to New I'm Addington. Not because, no, <laughs> you don't have to, it's fine. We've read the book, I've had a picture painted for me that real life can only disappoint you. <laughs> um, so, you know, by the end of the book, I am going back to New Addington. It does make a lot more sense. And I think. You know, it's sort of... I think a lot of people think that I'm... You know, I've got this kind of trite line that I'm spinning that, you know, oh, I you know, start New Edition and I go back at the end of it and I found out all this stuff. And blah, blah. and it sounds like I'm spinning a line, but actually it's true. I genuinely did understand it a lot more after but also, going to it's Sheffield a, and Newcastle and places. It's not a neat answer, is it? It's not you come back no. and you go, and this is the one thing you're sort of like, no, this is a number of different attempts. Yeah. It's a hodgepodge, that's yeah. good, which is what sort of... It is a great answer because that's the truest answer all, isn't it? The answer is mm. never, and it's this, it's this one thing. It's not, mm. it's a dozen things that have been smashed together and never really <laughs> designed properly. Yeah, no, exactly. They were in, there's no, you know, a lot of places that I went to, you know, there was sort of amazing planning and vision and, you know, it's this thing, you know, you go to Cumbernauld, you know, in, you know, sort of near Glasgow, the new town, you know, it's like the most modern place in Britain that ever got built, really. And it, you know, it's so much a thing. But, you know, anything that isn't that thing there looks really weird. You know, it looks really <laughs> sticks out. But in New Addington, you could build more or less anything and it would fit in because everything is just a bit of a jumble, you know. It's, you know, there's no coherent structure to it at all, really. You know, it starts off as this sort of 30s estate, then it grows into this sort of, then it gets this kind of 50s little blocks grow up all over the place and it's got a 60s estate and, it, you know, and it's just, it's got things that sort of plonked within other things. And one of the things I realise about it is that because it's built in the, in the green belt and in the green belt you can't expand you can't get bigger yeah, yeah. so to put more people in it you just have to keep crowding it with more st- you know Find you just put more little blocks in it so that's sort of what's happened which is why it's got so much stuff all sort of crammed together so it's sort of it is, it is I mean I say that I came back at the end of it and I understood it all you know, but you understood why you couldn't understand it. Yeah, That's the, yeah, 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 yeah. It's still not the easiest place in the world. It will never be the easiest place in the world to sort of describe. But then, you know, nowhere is really. I mean, you know, Camberwell or, you know, Forest Hill where I live now, you know, they, they sort of seem superficially like you understand them. And then when you start, as soon as you start researching the history of them, they're bonkers, you know, all <laughs> over the place. Um, talking about 
places and the story super plays. One uh, one of my favourite bits in the book was that we talk about Milton Keynes, where there's a very clear dividing line between different developments. Mm. And you were saying like it's urban myths got round that the early houses were only supposed to be temporary accommodation because <laughs> they're built so in such a substandard way compared to the later houses mm. that they were only ever designed as temporary accommodation for builders. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, and, and people still, I mean, everybody in Milton Keynes still believes this. I think even a lot of the people that live in them still think that that's the case. And it wasn't. It, what happened was the first three estates of Milton, three or four estates of Milton. There was so many. There was a brickmaker strike, so no one was making bricks. So they, and all of the bricks that had been made were all being sort of shipped off to sort of other places with higher priority. So Milton Keynes was like, oh, okay, we're going to have to build it with breeze blocks and you know plywood and stuff. So these places that were supposed to be built with sort of certain materials ended up being built with a sort of quite temporary looking material, you know, stuff you wouldn't think was a finished product because it wasn't that wasn't what they were meant to be built with so you do kind of wander around them thinking oh that's a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that right mm-hmm. um you it's know quite, quite an interesting link to the Excalibur estate in, mm. in uh, Catford which was there was a set of prefabs how many were there originally uh, 187. And there's now six, is there? Well, there's, the, there's going to be, oh, yeah, well, but okay. not at the moment. So I went, I went... There it is, I suppose. Yeah, I went there the other day and it was, you know, it was quite a shock actually sort of turning the corner because they're so low that, you know, even the little Victorian houses around it sort of tower over them <laughs> and you don't, you don't see them until you're right on top of them. And they sort of turned the corner again like I had loads of times before. And actually loads of it was all sort of behind wooden sort of, you know, sort of demolition sort of shutters and... You know, there's a massive, like about a third of it has already sort of been knocked down or is already being knocked down. And, yeah, so, I mean, it's going to take quite a while for them to knock it all down. There's a really good prefab museum there at the moment, which I think today they got their Kickstarter funding to sort of last for oh, the next brilliant. few years. So that's, oh, they're going to be there My for friend a few uh, Kira years. did um, a little comic um, oh. For it, uh, it's like a four-page. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, you've right. seen it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just called Excalibur Estate. Yeah. And it's just little uh, portraits of people who uh, are, are still living there now. It's a lovely little, lovely little thing. Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, place, isn't it? I mean, it's built by prison, uh, POWs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I mean, it, like we were saying with, with Milton Keynes, things that were built to be permanent and look temporary, they were built to be temporary <laughs> yeah. and remained for decades yeah. 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 until. Now, essentially, yeah. and again, another thing that comes out of the book is the fact that you know it's not a case of people um, having to be saved from these places. They're sort of told to move out, and like, can I not just stay mm. in this temporary accommodation that was never designed to be up for this long? Uh, yeah, people just fall in love with them, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And there was a really, really close vote between the residents there as to whether they were going to keep them or not. I mean, you know, it's like you know, it was a bit like this sort of you know the Scotland vote. You know, it was really you know you sort of completely divided the estate. You know, they were you know, for and against, you know, and it created a lot of tension and it's been very difficult for them to get over, I think, you know, for a lot of people, you know, because a lot of people did want to leave because, you know, they're cold, you know, damp. A lot of them were, you know, falling to bits, but then a lot of them weren't. A lot of them were really well looked after and kind of, you know, were actually sort of, you know, were sort of standing up and people just love them anyway, you know, in in the way that, you know, people love the kind of imperfections of stuff as much as they like the perfection of other things, you know. Well, this is something you capture in the book, I think, relating to, say, tower blocks, and uh, we were talking recently about uh, the subways at the Elephant Castle that people have an idea about things and like things are just written off like well people don't like subways oh people don't like tower blocks are terrible yeah. it's like well they're not necessarily are they no. like, one thing you do is explore lots of different types of, the, of these things mm. and you know you see that some are terrible and some are great and yeah. some are suited for some people and not for others you know? yeah yeah absolutely well one I mean there's sort of an early example of 
how you kind of might look at one thing and think, oh, it's all kind of quite homogenous, and then you realise actually it isn't. Was the Festival of Britain where, you know, like half, you know, half the architects were slagging off the other half, going, "This is so <laughs> rubbish. What have you built there? That's terrible." You know, and just be feeling a bit embarrassed that their thing was there because it was next to something that they hated, and you know, and there was all this kind of rivalry. And then there was another lot of architects that were sort of excluded from it, all going, "This is all rubbish. Why is this?" <laughs> you know, so there was all this kind of, you know, it's quite easy to kind of look at this stuff and think, "Oh, that really represents that moment in time. It's a sort of coherent thing. You know, it all means." Sort of, and actually, it's nothing like that at all. You've got so many ego, and particularly. I think with architect, I mean that was one of the things about kind of researching the people was the architects and planners. You know, you do get some massive egos clashing. Yeah, some fascinating personalities. In yeah, there. with something like the Festival of Britain, because it was so, it was branded very strongly, wasn't it? Mm. It was, you know, had wonderful promotional images. Yeah, yeah. So it's very easy to see it as a single vision, but it was something that, you know, in government with the public at large, there were huge sort of schisms of, of opinion. Mm. But it seems like it's one of those, it's almost um, like the, the anti-Millennium Dome where I think people were, well actually no, that's unfair because I think people who went to Millennium Dome enjoyed it, didn't they? But I think with the Festival of Britain, the idea was it seemed like it was very, very, very divisive. But once people went there, they loved it. Mm. It really was um, yeah, a smash. Absolutely. A lot yeah. of parallels with the Millennium Dome though, isn't there? Of like this idea that it's just swallowed money and, uh, you know, it was... Put, Kind of quickly dismantled, I suppose, wasn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. A, it seems like a real, a huge loss there in terms of design and architecture. Just, you know, a, again, it became politicised, so yeah. Churchill gets back into power and yeah. al- almost immediately, I think one of the first things he does is order it to be Although, actually, I mean, it's really, there's quite a lot of kind of contention about how it got knocked down, and it was always planned to be demolished, and it had already started to be demolished before the election, which is quite interesting. Oh, okay. So there was... So, I mean, he obviously didn't save it because he wasn't that kid. Although there was a really nice, I saw a really nice kind of film where he was, from the time, like, from the opening day, he got obsessed with the escalator in the Dome of Discovery and was just going up and down it for ages. <laughs> it was a really, this really enormous, like, like the one at Angel, you know, this really, really long escalator goes on for ages. And he, you know, it's kind of gets off at the bottom and it goes back on it again. <laughs> just we'll really nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I think he probably had that installed in number 10. <laughs> Yeah, uh, talking of the Festival of Britain, um, talk about the lion um, mm. from uh, the brewery. And I thought that was an interesting thing, um, just because, of course, that, you know, the, the, one of the sort of themes of the book is about manufacturing techniques and, mm. and particular um, products. I want to say materials. Materials would be the thing, and and uh, it's something we talked about on the show before. The the sort of code stone lion mm. and code stone being a, a man made stone that you know and uh, the 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 what would you, I want to say stonery, but I imagine that's Mason, not masonry. masonry. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's going on with you today? No, I normally I'm pulling you up for words, but I always cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> that's there, isn't it? <laughs> that's going into the great thing, but um. Yeah, it was very interesting. It became this sort of symbol of the whole festival. Mm. And it was uh, something that was, you know, manufactured by man in terms of materials and uh, process. So it's a very fitting symbol, I think, for this new wave of design and architecture and new materials coming into play. Yeah, well, it was nice how they kind of included some of the old things, like the shot tower, so that big kind of like, you know, the big kind of chimney, which, you know, it looks like a chimney, but actually isn't. It's you drop kind of lead down it and it makes lead shot. You sort of drop it into a thing and it 
forms at the bottom. You've got lead shot. I mean, nobody needs lead shot, so you know, it didn't really have a lot, <laughs> lot of purpose in nineteen, you know, nineteen fifty-one. But um, but they kind of put an amazing kind of little radar dish on the top of it that was then that was taking pictures that were then being projected into the Dome of Discovery, so you could see what that thing was doing. And actually, there's a thing on the top of. There's a boat on the top of the Hayward Gallery now. Yeah, right, been there for a couple of years. Yeah, exactly. And that's got a very similar thing, because that is also broadcasting from an actual boat somewhere, I think. Um, Oh, right. So there's a kind of weird continuity. I don't know whether that's deliberate, but it's a kind of really nice bit of continuity, whether it's deliberate or not. A little Um, echo over the years. Yeah, nice. Yeah, Yeah, Steve was saying that... uh, Well, you were both saying, really, that it was quite an optimistic book, Mm. really. And it... Kind of, it, was it a deliberate choice? Well, obviously it was a deliberate choice, but was it, uh, was it with that in mind that you kind of ended with the Barbican and the National Theatre? Two things that are, are successes of concrete, rather than going, I'm just going to end with a Haygate estate. I mean, it's weird. when I always try to stru- structure it, it's very difficult to know where to put the Barbican Centre in the book, because it's like all the way through it, you know, it's the Blitz. You know, it's a big blitz crater, so it's right in 1945. And then I ended the book in 1979. And actually, the Barbican doesn't really open... You know, the Barbican Centre doesn't open till 81. So I sort of thought, actually, the Barbican's really nice to put at the end of it, because it's sort of... It's like the whole story in kind of micro, you know. you sort of you, and, I, and I quite like the fact that I was writing... In the last chapter, was writing about what was going on in the first chapter again, the blitz and all that. Um... And and then when I was looking at the history of the National Theatre, I was just amazed that it was such a long, you know, that there'd been ideas for it like in the 18th century. Yeah, it never, <laughs> yeah, it never <laughs> happened, you know, and it just kept not happening. And then, you know, finally, finally it does happen. And then it's going to be, you know, and then it was going to be where the uh, where the wheel is, you know, now, yeah. you know, and, and it was going to be, there were going to be two of them facing one another. One of them was going to be an opera house. And then they sort of you know, ditch the opera house and then shunted it along the Thames a bit and suddenly it's not facing a, a sort of mirror image. Because you can sort of see how the building as it is would have worked really well with a sort of mirrored one. Because mm. you'd have ended up with a big kind of like sort of terrace between the two of them at the front. But um, obviously that doesn't, it doesn't exist. And now it's kind of facing the, you know, it faces Waterloo Bridge. Um, but it also, it also sort of, you know, it would have been that back wall of it or the sort of side wall of it would have been sort of against the bridge uh, where it was before. But because it's been shunted along, it's now sort of facing St Paul's. So the sort of, they've got a really weird thing now of, you know, the building is sort of turning its back on, like, you know, the best view in London of, you know, St Paul's and, you know, the Barbican and, and you know, and the city and everything sort of down in that direction, which is sort of spectacular. And the, um, you know, the building actually on that side, has got that, I mean, it is just blank. You know, they've got no windows or anything, you know, they were sort of saying, you know, they've just got one tiny little thing at the top that you can kind of look in that direction and, and you know, that wasn't... It sort, of, it sort of feels weird. I think there was, you know, quite a lot of hangover from the original right. from the original design that never really got that modified for, the, for its new site. It's interesting, they just sort of took one element out and left the rest there. Yeah. You know, it sort of depended on there being another element. Yeah, yeah. And then he... And then... Um, uh, uh, Dennis Laston, the architect, also designed the building that's next to it now, the um, the uh, IBM building, which oh, is really yeah. similar. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it is, isn't it? I it's sort of that. similar, but a che- bit cheaper. It's sort of, right. you know. <laughs> <laughs> IBM haven't got any money, have they? No, exactly. You know, well, they probably didn't in the sixties when they had like you know four computers. <laughs> I, w- I went to uh, London Nautical School, which is just around oh, the yeah. corner there, and I remember uh, the first. It was the induction evening. 
or some kind of evening I went with my parents and like we got off the stop a stop later than you would get off really about on Waterloo Bridge and mm. came through around the back of the National Theatre and the IBM building and LWT and that's like 10 year old 11 year old yeah. it's just like this is <laughs> yeah, like this is what is this is not like my school which is just next to a park and some three level flats yeah, and yeah. I never went back that way again because that was like the wrong way to go yeah, but yeah. like that that no, memory just yeah. going through these going just to huge, space school yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dystopian uh, yeah. <laughs> secondary school um, one of the things I'd never realised about the National Gallery was, and um, National, National Theatre, um, just not paying attention, was the, the whole board, what's the phrase, board form? Oh, shuttering. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, planks of wood, essentially, or sheets of wood are placed against it to, to help it form, and the grain of the wood is transferred onto, mm. and they had to do lots of tests to find the right mix of cement that would take uh, or concrete, I should say, that would take the um, the grain. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, I never I mean, realised that. It's really expensive to kind of get that effect. In the same way, it was really expensive to get the kind of the effect of the barbican, which is a completely different sort of thing. But um, yeah, that's yeah, hand finished, isn't it? Yeah, the yeah. The heck, Again, yeah. I had no I mean, idea. That... Ludicrous yes. idea. I know. We're going <laughs> to pickaxe the entire set. We're going to build like you know the biggest sort of amount of concrete in London, and then we're going to pickaxe the entire surface. I mean, Absolutely. And that's the thing, the, the time it must have taken. Yeah. And with the National Theatre, you know, what are they doing? Like holding the wood there, taking it away, and if it's not right, doing it again? Or? No, it's, it's sort of, it's the other way around, actually, in that they, the, they make kind of big um, moulds, like a jelly mould, basically, of, the, of wood. And then they make sure the kind of all the grain in the wood is sort of showing, and then they kind of and then they pour the concrete into it, and then they take the shuttering off it, and then they lift the concrete into place into where it goes. So it's it's a kind of byproduct of making you know concrete in that way. In that you know lots of flats were built in that sort of way, but because most flats were built with quite kind of rough sort of you know big stones and stuff you would never get you never see the wood effect on it but because they use really like micro sandy you know it's a very technical term obviously <laughs> um <laughs> you know grains for the for the concrete there you can see every you know you can see every little every little kind of line in the wood yeah, which is amazing yeah. and, and you know it's actually quite lovely to look at but you, know, you don't realise yeah, it's there realized, almost. It, you've got a, a wonderful photograph in the book that shows it so clearly, and you're like, wow, you can make out the grain. Yeah, it's I really... had no idea that detail was there at all. Yeah. I like your idea, Steve, that the building is like wet cement. And, and then it's just like, like putting wood against it. Who <laughs> <laughs> yeah. write the names of it? They just try to keep it in. <laughs> yeah. It's I'm moving. It's not a revelation. I'm no architect. That's how I'm building it. Everyone's dead, are they? That would make sense. The building would collapse. <laughs> Did you, um, obviously, while you're writing this book, the fate of the Haygate is decided mm. and, you know, with the paper condition begins to be carried out. And obviously, mm. there have been so many false starts over the years yeah. in terms of uh, what was going to happen to the mm. Haygate. Was it difficult for you to sort of incorporate it into the book in terms of the fact that it was, it was a very transient sort of fate, is it? It was really, although, I mean, I'd interviewed, it was quite interesting because I interviewed a couple of guys who lived, who'd lived sort of opposite the Haygate and watched it being built, you know, and they'd sort of played on the bomb sites and everything, you know, when they were kids and, you know, and then it was sort of one of the last really big 
bombsite bits of London to be rebuilt, um, certainly in the kind of inner London anyway. And it, um, you know, it, it's, I found it interesting talking to them about it because, you know, they were, they were like, God, it was amazing. You know, all this stuff happened, you know, and that, you know, they could really, they could really remember quite strongly what it was like at the time sort of, you know, for the people moving into it as well, you know, that it was sort of exciting. And I also talked to one of the builders who then lived on the Haygate. Uh, and that was also, you know, really interesting. You know, so I think, you know, it is, you know, it was it was good. I tried, As much as I could, I tried to sort of see the inside of stuff, you know, through the people's eyes who, you know, were there at the time. Because there's only so much kind of me standing in front of something now is going to sort of get out of something you know it's much that's more a very particular yeah. part of the book isn't it but um, yeah. as you say to get the full story you need yeah. to yeah this is the case throughout isn't it i mean when you go to glasgow when you go to coventry when you go to plymouth it's all there's a broad range i mean there's the human stories of people that, li- that mm. lived in these places and experienced life in you know it, between those four walls mm. and you, and there's also the other side of it of you know what it looks like you know the whole the whole spectrum one of, I mean, one of the most boring things I think people say all the time, whenever you read any article that's ever written about, um, if it's got comments underneath it, you know, about the subject, they will say, well, if you like it so much, why didn't you live there? You know, regardless of whether it's like a it. car park <laughs> or whatever. Get away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, difficult for us to, um, given the sort of the press that Tower Blocks are given, when people first moved in, it was wonderful. Mm. The toilet was indoors. Yeah, this is the thing that you're <laughs> yeah. talking about people that come in from actual slums. Yeah. You've got, yeah. you know, a flat to yourself mm. as opposed to a room in a tenement block. Yeah. That, you know, you know where well, you've got to, you know, go outside to use the loo and you've only got cold water. And, yeah, you you're know. washing your kids in a sink. Yeah. And even if, you know, and even if they did that tenement up, you know, four fifths of those families would have to move out anyway because they were overcrowded. So, yeah. you know, it, where are they going to go? You know, so, you know, this kind of romantic idea that, you know, they could have all just been done up as they were and then that would have been fine, you know, doesn't take into account all these other people that were, you know, that were living in a really overcrowded place that would have then had to go somewhere else, you know. So I think it was really, it must have been absolutely, you know, impossible really to sort of make the right decision you know, and, and quite kind of brave of anybody sort of, you know, sort of going, right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to knock down all it. There was this comprehensive development area, so they were sort of called, you know, this sort of law that allowed you to kind of like knock down a whole massive area with sort of compulsory purchase orders and you'd, you'd build whatever, you know, thing you'd planned on it. And, um, you know, and you must have taken incredible kind of balls to sort of do that, you know, to sort of think, OK, this is, we're going to clear all of that. And, you know, and it, you get one of the things I thought was quite interesting was you kind of look at these things and they all feel like they're telling the same story, but actually they're not telling the same story at all. Some of them are, you know, sort of story of, you know, um, the London County Council and their architects and their local um, sort of builders coming in and building the things that they wanted to build. Some of them are, you know, Council's just kind of flogging off an area to a developer and they just build a load of stuff and there's no real control over what it is, you know. And there's a real kind of, you know, that kind of public and private thing that we... You yeah, know, that seems that to we, sort of you, develop through the book in terms yeah. of, like, all these projects are pragmatic initially because of the need for housing after the war and it mm. is from local government that it sort of stems. So it is councillors talking to 
um, builders, mm. but then suddenly, as you say, developers come in, and yeah. it becomes a different thing, doesn't it? Yeah. And it becomes less about, well, a different sort of pragmatism, where it's rather than, well, this is how many people we need to house, and mm. what sort of space we've got, it's just sort of like, how many houses can we get in there? There's a bit where um, you talk about one particular, um, it's a, I think it's like a formula for... Um, for building in terms of height and space, the, the amount of space that building can oh, take the up. plot ratio. Yeah, yeah. And it, uh, there's a lovely phrase where someone says uh, it was designed as a minima, and it becomes oh, sorry, designed as a, as a maxima, and it becomes a minima. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. We, we, you know, this is what we can get away with, rather yeah. than this is the you know the, the most we can probably right. What's the most we can actually get away with? Mm. And it, you know, it's really interesting sort of seeing that transition from, and it is you know tied in as a as a point you make in the book as well where when these projects are, are designed, it's alongside um, the welfare state and the National mm, Health Service. Mm. It's part of this idea of, like, yeah, government can be of use and help and directly impact your life in a positive way. And over the years, that has sort of shifted to, it's well expensive, though, isn't it? So we sell it off to these yeah. guys, that's a lump sum, and then we don't yeah. have the maintenance costs. And yeah. that's what's happened now, essentially, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's really, you know, one of the things is it's very hard not to be sad, you know, yeah. going around and looking at places. You know, you just think, God, you... one of the real problems being that, you know, either, you know, stuff is sort of sold off piecemeal so that no one's looking after it anymore. But the really big problem just being that there has been no maintenance for yeah. a lot of the really big places for a long time, you know. So the Haygate, you know, you know, has been falling to bits for ages. And that kind of uncertainty hanging over it, you know, just makes it worse. And ironically, that's exactly what happened to the places that they were replacing, which was, you know, that you would get, um, uh, you know, you would get kind of uncertainty hanging over kind of a whole sort of area, a whole district. And then, you know, gradually businesses would move out and people would move away and houses would sort of start to fall down under their own weight and, you know, no one was looking after anything. And it sort of, they become slums because everyone's kind of going, oh, I don't know, maybe we should knock them down and maybe we shouldn't and maybe we should do this and maybe we should do that. And then... the people living in them just have to get on with it as best yeah, they can. absolutely. And then, you know, and then bits of them get kind of, you know, piecemeal rebuilt or maybe they all get knocked down or, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they all get restored. You know, we can see all of those things happening in London, you know, different bits of London. You see, you know that thing going on even in some streets you see all, all of those things going on you know next yeah, to one right. another which is you know which is fascinating i think that you just see you know in london you just see everything you know there's the whole story of all the things that i sort of talk about in the book really you know that there's a sort of microcosm of it going on somewhere in london you know how you're in forest hill now i am how, how do you feel about forest hill i find it far far too much gradient <laughs> you just, there's, no there's a clue in the lane, isn't there? I mean. yeah, but it's, yeah. There's no settling down, is there? No. I only ever go through on the bus, to be honest. Yeah. Occasionally, I've you know, well, I had to sign an estate agent contract there once. It's hor- horrific. <laughs> but you just everywhere, it's just all up and down, isn't it's it? It's bonkers. Yeah. Well, I don't know where I'm ever going to cycle to work. I mean, you know, I could barely get out my front door. You know? <laughs> um, and you know, I want. I, so I live really near the Horniman Museum, but I live right at the bottom of the hill. So if I want to go up there, you know, it's the most ridiculous I mean it really it's virtually crampons time you know I mean it is you know I do think I'm going to have to kind of eat my own leg or whatever it was like I did in that film you know um, yeah. nice to be near the Horniman though isn't it oh it's amazing yeah it's amazing and you know you see Dawson's Heights which is that lovely block of flats there oh which you, is sort you of wrote something in, about that recently yeah yeah in, uh, for, for, the Horniman. Horniman. for the Horniman yeah yeah, yeah. so um, yeah so I mean it's, 
it's just an amazing view of London, and you know it's got a baby alpaca. You know, it's got everything really. <laughs> it's spectacular. Where is Dawson Heights? Because I've only ever seen it in yeah. on the skyline. It's so really weird. You sure. don't see it when you're close up to it because it so kind of hugs the hill. It's sort of from Horniman. It looks like it's this amazing mm. sort of like imposing thing. But actually, when you're down, it's it's in East Dulwich, sort of border of East Dulwich and Forest Hill, really. Oh right. Okay. Um, sort of, it's just off Lordship Lane. Because um, right, you see it from Dogkin Hill, didn't you? You do. You, when yeah. You're like at the top, yeah. The top of you, like, wow. And yeah. then you kind of, like, and then you lose it. But yeah, even when you're at the bottom of the street that that goes up to it, you can't see it really. You know, right. it is because it's so. You know, just the street does that. You know, and so just the building. So it's sort of hidden behind houses. It's kind. Of Have you, did you go around there? You've been there, really. there. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I. I I really love it. I've not, I've not managed to get into anyone's flat yet, but you know, someone leaves, someone leaves the window open, I'll be. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> no. So, and you lived in Elephant Castle for a time. Yeah? I did, yeah. Whereabouts yeah. were you then? So, I lived on the Browning Estate on Browning Street. So, just off oh, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just off of uh, Woolworth Road. Yeah, I grew up on uh, Portland Street among other streets. Oh yeah, yeah right, so just okay. down the road. Yeah. In terms of um, Central Croydon as yeah. well. Um, talk about that a lot in the book mm. you know distinct from New Addington and there are some incredible structures there you know you, the, yeah 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 uh, uh, the, the, the 50p tower yeah being uh, the most striking one is that something you'd seen before I don't yeah. think it is no, no. I um <laughs> You don't really go to Royden, do you no I, I mean imagine. I've had I've had a few occasions I've, I've been there a few times but um no, the whole kind of this quote. I'm not sure what you quoted, but they um, they described Croydon as Manhattan built in Poland. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is wonderful. But all that kind of all the kind of big tower stuff, I've never really been there. So, right. whereas I, I went to school in uh, Norwood, so I had my uh, friends yeah, in Croydon, yeah, yeah. so I would sort of naturally go to Croydon. Yeah. a lot of weekends, and, and still you used to get your uh, comics from there, Steve, as well. Yeah, special to... as well. Uh, used to go well. Used to go to a few places. Sheraton Hughes, as we talked about. Um, Forbidden Planet. Um, what was that shop around the back of? I can't remember. That. Oh yeah, around the back of the Drummond Centre. Yeah, there was a really yeah. good comic strip shop there. Yeah. I've forgotten the name of it. God, yeah, me too, and I really liked it. Um, but yeah, used to go, and still, you know, still go there now for haircuts and the library. Um, so it's a, a place where you know I'm aware. I'm reading about you know you talk about the Whitgift Centre and St George's yeah. Walk. And I had no idea about the sort of the sort of the fate of St George's Walk, where it opens and almost immediately gets I know overshadowed. I know it's terrible, really. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a lovely little, in terms of design, as you say, little hexagonal features and whatnot. Mm, it's no, lovely it's lovely. Space. No, it's kind of the you know, it's sort of it's the Duffy to the Wicker Centre's Adele, really. You know, it sort of <laughs> looks so promising for like you know six months uh, and then gets the tagline for the show. Strong, <laughs> horribly eclipsed. By uh, by the Wickhift, yeah. So, and I I actually, I mean, it's a sort of building. I much prefer it, and it's got the the Nestle building is sort of part of the same, you know, thing, which is you know kind of amazing. Uh, but now Nestle have moved out. You know, they've been talking about knocking down St George's Walk for so long. It's yeah. had about three shops in it forever, um, <laughs> which is really sad because it used to have loads of really nice cafes and stuff. It's a really nice place to hang out. Although it's designed, the design it was really kind of long and thin. Uh, it's like the worst wind tunnel in the world where you've kind of got a really long, thin kind of like tube with this massive block at one end. They couldn't have designed a more effective wind tunnel. <laughs> and I think the only place where there was more of a wind tunnel uh, that, I, that I kind of came across in the sort of research was um, 
the Basil Spence blocks in the Gorbals, which got knocked down in the 90s, which, you know, the, the guy that I interviewed was saying, you know, he just remembered kind of like standing there with his kind of parka out, you know, like a kind of cape, and everybody kind of like struggling into <laughs> And like you couldn't move, you know, no matter how much you ran, you were still standing in the same place and just watching kind of old ladies get kind of blown away by this kind of huge <laughs> gust of wind. So, you know, and I, you know, St George's Walk, unfortunately, it's had a bit of that. So sort of sitting, it was nice for cafes if you sat in, but I wouldn't. Sit outside with So, me and my visions of St George's Walk, though, are Croydon on a Friday or a Saturday night. And Croydon on a Friday and Saturday night generally yeah. is a bit of a. Oh, it was a bit leery. Well, yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, I mean, you know, there have been so many good, you know, that was Blue Orchid for ages, which the was Blue Orchid. God, terrifying. Was a, it was a. a club. A, yeah, yeah, terrible, terrible nightclub. Um, I remember a time, I've been there like twice ever and never wanted to go, always friends and sisters. Yeah. But they had this, um, I think, their lowest point was when they started to just do a Chinese food buffet. Uh, just, yeah, just to encourage people to... <laughs> and I, think, I think it was a thing of like increasing their offer, but also ensuring that as many mm. of their clients had their stomachs lined as possible, mm. just to try uh, and stop people getting yeah. madly drunk by 11 yeah. o'clock and then uh, fighting in St George's Walk. Yeah, which... yeah. yeah no, on a, and I think actually it's been, you know, it's had... You know, and it used to have, you know, that place used to have amazing gigs back in the kind of punk era. You know, not when it was, <laughs> you know, not when it was a blue orchid, but, um, but, you know, it had like every everybody famous from what that the, era. I, when, I didn't realise um, it had a sort of history to it. Yeah, it? yeah, it was really, it was, was really cool. What was the venue before Was now? it the Greyhound? Oh. Yeah. I thought the Greyhound was... Or was it, no, the Greyhound's the other one. The, what was the, the Greyhound's the pub up. Yeah, 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 the Greyhound, yeah, you know, and they also had a load of stuff. What was the name of it? Because we really played the Greyhounds, me. and that's where John Peel's producer first. It moved. was it was quite yeah. short lived. Like its glory days, it didn't last very long, and it was sort of well over by the time I was old enough to go there. Right. So it kind of gone. Yeah, yeah, really. And then you know, every so often, somebody kind of posts like these amazing kind of lineups of you know people. Just little yeah, ticket or a poster yeah, for a bit gutting. Well, now that we're covering Croydon, I mean, we're doing all that, aren't we? We have to do a David Lean episode. Yeah, absolutely. I'm torn on it. I'm torn. I'm we can do um, a whole episode <laughs> on the Falls Peel sessions because the producer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not really German. I, was, uh, I went uh, to Croydon last week for a haircut and uh, just to get into the just to now, let people know that. Uh, but uh, I was struck, and I think it might have been the fact that this show was coming up, and I was thinking more about structures and places. But it seems healthier as a high street in terms of like. Occupancy. It just seems a bit more vibrant than it has been for a few years. It's yeah, I mean, it really. I mean, it. it really did kind of like stop. And I'm a bit worried about these kind of new plans to kind of knock, you know, knock down the Wicker Centre and build this kind of new Westfield. Yeah, thing Westfield. It's going to be a Westfield. Yeah, yeah, it's Westfield South. So yeah, sort of branding it as I think Southfield might be a bit cross though, mightn't they, if they call it Southfield. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, don't do that, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Stick with your original plan. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I'm a bit worried that, again, you know, it's that, you know, that whole blight thing, you know, planning blight thing happens where somebody goes, oh, in the future, in the very Mm. near future, we're going to do this (laughs) massive thing. And then everybody goes, oh, I don't know, and then they all move, you know, and then you just end up with the ghost town again, you know, so... And I think one of the things they've done really well, I think, is the tech city thing, you know, where they've got loads of... I mean, the main tech... side. I know, exactly. <laughs> you know, obviously, it makes you want to kind of, you know, throw yourself on a spike. What is it, tech city? Uh, well, they've encouraged loads of um, tech companies to go there on really kind of like low rates. So loads of the loads of the kind of buildings there are sort of full of these kind of like new young tech companies rather than, 
you know, insurance companies. Detroit, yeah. Basically, it's Croydon was all about insurance companies for years. Yeah, it was so, finance for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Because so I guess you Wall had... Street in Warsaw. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so you write a regular blog. Well, I imagine you write for lots of places, do you? <laughs> well, a few. DirtyModernScoundrel.com. Um, regular posting on there, isn't it? Yeah, 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 all the time. About any old rubbish, really. But, I, you know, I kind of... I'm sort of obsessed with sort of looking at old, you know, old kind of films and stuff, you know, and that sort of, you know, there's so many great, I mean, all the new towns and stuff have these like amazing films to sort of sell them as this, as this kind of amazing place to go, you know, back in the day. So, you know, it's full of, it's full of lots of kind of 40s, 50s and 60s and 70s films, you know, promoting kind of towns or that's helicopters sort of thing, you know. in like 80% of them. Lots of helicopters. Yeah, helicopters was the main theme of the book. Who it's knew, a real theme that comes out of the book. Everybody wanted a helipad. I mean, literally every And there's scheme, a lovely bit where like brilliant. some Radio 1 DJ uh, had yeah. a, a helicopter for Because they yeah. all did in the 80s, didn't they? They, they were did. constantly yeah. flying around and crashing. Yeah, and, um, and then, yeah, yeah you get to see yeah. uh, an actual helicopter. Yeah. Or, you know, hear tell of an actual helicopter. I know. I saw a post, I hadn't had a chance to go through everything, but um, of a film, 25 minute film that was semi fictional, I think you had said, set in Thamesmead. Yes. And that intrigued me, so I'm, I'll probably watch it when I get yeah, home. That's a really good one, actually. It's really good. There were two really good Thamesmead films on there. They're both uh, from the London Metropolitan Archive, which I kind of posted on there. And they're really, really good films. They're both about the same length. And they were made about two years apart. I sort of can't really understand why they've made two... Very I mean, I know one of them is sort of partly fictional, and you've got these kind of two characters going around, and it's a bit like kind of here we go around the mulberry bush, only done as, you know, and you're selling Thamesmead. It's a very odd idea anyway, but um, but they are, otherwise they are kind of quite similar in what they're trying to do. And I don't know whether they made the sort of straight documentary sort of a couple of years before and thought, oh, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit square. You know, suddenly everybody's, you know, wearing flares and looks much more exciting let's remake <laughs> it and then they kind of remake this one you know which is all a bit kind of live a bird you know in only in Thamesmead so it's it's yeah it's a quite a strange thing but it's sort of brilliant and it's got amazing I mean the footage is amazing I mean that's one of the things you kind of look at it and it all looks kind of you know given that Thamesmead sort of changed so much you know like they kind of just went oh no this isn't working let's let's build this and then they sort of keep you know Every like ten years, go. Oh God, no! Let's do something else. And then, <laughs> it's just like you know, it's, as much as, it's a bit like New Addington in a lot of ways. You know, in the, you know, it kind of kind of goes along in one direction for a bit, and then they go, no, 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 let's do this now, and then no, 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 let's do that. And because it's full of kind of a lot of kind of quite poor people who don't have much of a voice, you know, they can do more or less what they want to it, and nobody really, you know, says anything about it. They're just sort of stuck with it, really. Isolated, isn't it? Mm. So you can get Concretopia from all the usual places, websites and shops. DirtyModernScoundrel.com if you want to see Thamesmead's videos and more. <laughs> and it's uh, Grindrod, at Grindrod on Twitter. It certainly is. Well worth a follow. We're at SLHC. Send us an email, southlandhardcore.gmail.com if you've got something to tell us. <laughs> southlandhardcore.com, we're on iTunes, obviously. And we'll see you at Elefest. Mm-hmm.